Pot friends and listeners. How was your summer? I missed you. So we're kicking off the first episode of the season four, and I am your host, Yukimi Song. It feels good to be back in the podcasting groove. I've missed this so much. As much as I enjoyed my break, there's nothing like connecting with all of you, sharing stories, music, and all the piano magic we've got lined up this season. Welcome to all of our first-time listeners and viewers of The Piano Pot. I'm a classical pianist and educator from New York City. Whether you're diving deep into a piano career, working professionally in the classical music scene, or simply have a passion for piano tunes and a curiosity about its universe, this podcast is your backstage pass. Let me tell you a little bit about The Piano Pot. It is a one-of-a-kind podcast that delves deep into the fascinating world of classical music with a specific focus on the piano. In a bi-weekly format, we engage in intriguing discussions with guests, breaking exciting new ground in the classical music industry. Our mission is to cultivate a vibrant community that champions fresh perspectives, ensuring that classical music remains alive and resonant in our ever-evolving world. Before getting started, I want to thank you, amazing TPP fans and faithful listeners, for tuning in today. Yay, it's season four, thanks to you. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platforms, because every rating review will help people find my show. Kicking off season four, I am thrilled to introduce Dr. Michael Kakoff, an American pianist of international acclaim, Dr. Kakov has dazzled audiences worldwide, both as a soloist and in collaboration with industry giants, including the late two-time Emmy winner Glenn Rovin. Hailing from a lineage of musicians, Dr. Kakov began his musical journey at the tender age of six. His distinguished academic journey led him through prestigious performing arts schools, such as Manus College of Music and Juilliard studying under maestros like Jerome Rose and Jerome Lowenthal. In 2020, he completed his DMA from the Manhattan School of Music, penning a dissertation on the scrapping issues, a topic on which his expertise has been sought by international publications. But that's not all. Dr. Kakov's discography is equally impressive. His third album, Unrivaled received accolades from Fanfare magazine, celebrating his virtuosity and passion for music. Beyond the stage and studio, he is nurturing the future of music, imparting wisdom at institutions like Virtue Academy and the Church Music School of Music and Art. So dear friends, here we are today to learn about Michael's incredible journey as a pianist, educator, recording artist focusing on his research on scrubbing and music theory, as well as more practical subjects like how to manage one's career as a pianist. So please stay with me till the end of the episode, as our conversation will lead to a more philosophical discussion later. So let's begin the Piano Pod's first episode of the new season with a guest, Dr. Michael Kakoff. Please enjoy the show. You are listening to The Piano Pod, where we talk to the brightest minds in the industry about how they are bringing the piano into the 21st century. Welcome to The Piano Pod, Michael. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. 
Thank you so much for being here today. It means so much. It's such a pleasure to have you as actually the first guest of the new season. And I know we've been connected on the social media for quite some time. And you have been kind enough to liking my post. I guess that's how we keep in touch and stay connected yes. with one another these days, right? <laughs> Whether that yeah. is personal level or professional. So, you know, actually your name has been in the guest wish list of mine since the get-go nice yeah yes and yeah. i can't i can't believe i'd not i didn't reach out to you till like really recently to be on my show so i've been listening to your recordings and also i read your scholarly you know article about scrabbing's idea of tone color relations and yes. it's fascinating interesting and, and and you know michael honestly i learned so much from your writing and this is the very reason i do what i do which is podcasting because I get to study about, you know, each guest, but also their expertise and wealth of knowledge. We'll talk more about your recordings later in this interview. So let's start with scrabbing your research. Tell me about the article a little bit. Yes, well, I, I have several articles and I think the one you're referring to is the, the one on his synesthesia and the, 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 the mapping of colors to different keys. So, I mean, the gist of that article, first of all, that idea was presented to me by my thesis advisor, uh, Dr. Green, uh, who helped me get published. And he guided my whole dissertation. He thought, well, maybe you can do something a little bit more practical and actually get, you know, get published with a, if you pick a sort of interesting enough topic. So he suggested that. And the, the article, basically the gist of it is the latest consensus is Scrabbin may not have had complete synesthesia. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is he may have been inspired by his conversations with, with Rimsky-Korsakov. And he came upon the idea of having like a really rigorous, really rigorous system where he would map different keys. And for Scrabbin, he supposedly only uh, felt that major keys may have a color because as we know, if you look at the overtone series, the actual, the minor third doesn't come there until much, much, much higher in the, in the overtone series. So it was, you know, it was only major keys and only a couple which he felt, you know, are, are concrete. And, you know, that being said, if you look at all the various archives, including that in the Scrabbin Museum, he had several valid, complete uh, schemes for colors and they're all different. So basically the latest consensus is he might not have had true synesthesia and that it may have been just a, a way of trying to kind of formalize uh, some, of his, some of his instincts in that, in that regard. So it's, wow. it's pretty fascinating. So it's kind of the article title should be Scrabble Synesthesia Debunked. Now, the, <laughs> the, yeah, and the other interesting thing is if you look at true synesthesia, it may not be consistent across the spectrum. For example, how come all the keys are colors? How come one of them isn't a smell and a, another key is like, like some uh, kind of unrelated sensation? You know, if you mm -hmm. look at the, the actual studies of synesthesia, mm -hmm. it's usually a completely irrational response that's not in any way uh, consistent. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole this time, I thought it was the synesthesia issue. So I thought he was in the, one of those, you know, neurodiverse spectrum or something. He may have been. I, I'm not saying it's it's completely, it was completely an act. 
But like the, the way this started was really he was inspired by his conversations with Rimsky-Korsakov. And he did have a couple of keys that he agreed with Rimsky-Korsakov on in terms of like what they represent. I, I don't want to say anything off the top of my head. You have to like read all the different, because I might get misquoted. You, you have to read the specifics because they vary across the different sources. Mm. Yeah. That being said, later on, for the Scraben sort of final vision for that Mysterium project, it was supposed to encompass, uh, you know, some kind of dance, some kind of uh, projection, some kind of visual aspect to it, including colors and even perfumes. So perfumes, yes, uh, like smell. That that was all wow. supposed to be part of the, his final kind of Mysterium, which never materialized. So in a way, it doesn't really matter whether how complete his synesthesia was because the way it inspired his, his craft. And furthermore, every single late period composition that we have of Scraben was, was an offshoot of that. Scraben felt like the, the massive Mysterium project is just too huge to materialize. So he took a lot of those ideas and he presented them in very compact forms, such as the sonata form, the prelude, the etude, but in the back of his mind, the end goal was this massive, you know, a mysterium. Oh, yeah. Wait, yeah. very fascinating individual, yeah. you know, yeah. and a little disturbed, but <laughs> in many ways, but it's, that we we don't know. We, we don't know how disturbed he was. The the uh, the people that mm -hmm. knew him said he was extremely organized and he loved to dress up. He loved dressing okay. up. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if that suggests disorganization, uh, you know. Some, something disorganized. We don't know. We don't know. It may have been this this uh, popular artist persona that people want to cultivate, mm. but he may have been extremely rational. And the, the music kind of suggests that. Like the, the, the crystalline uh, clarity of his harmonic writing and textures suggests that he was completely, completely sane. Wow. You yeah. know, maybe he was just way ahead of his time. That's why yes. people described him as like cuckoo. Or, yes. You know, Yes. Maybe so, because, you know, um, because after I read your article uh, and then so I watched the Prometheus Opus 60 by the famous Yale Symphonic Orchestra, yes. you know, performed in 2010, which is actually the rendition of, I, I guess, Scraben's vision, because yes. he, at that time when he wrote this piece, it was a, exactly hundred years ago and he was not able to technology was not obviously at that level of being yes. able to vis visualize his vision you know what i mean yes they, they were not able to project colors in real time yeah right and right the, but I've, I've seen that yale um that yale performance and they they were they were trying to kind of um recreate what some of his uh some of the indications in his score. Again, we we really don't know the specifics, but there's a couple of things that he did indicate in the in the uh, in the first edition of the score regarding colors. Yeah. Some people have the tendency to associate our feelings, wh whether that is anger or sadness or whatever that is, to associate with certain keys, right? So C yes. major sounds like this. C major represent purity, whatever that is, you know, F sharp mi minor is this feeling or represent this, but uh, scrabbing is more spe specific. Like every single note has the color, the shade. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, e even from personal experience, I don't have perfect pitch, but I can tell if a piece is played at the incorrect 
pitch. Mm. If, if we look at recording transfers and sometimes when something is transferred, we'll look in the case of an LP, if it's transferred down a semitone or up mm. a semitone, I can recognize something's off. If I look at a piece of music, I can hear it kind of in the original key, but mm. unfortunately I can't tell random random notes on the mm. piano. I, I, can't, I can't tell what clusters are. So mm. I don't have that kind of that kind of perfect pitch at all. But I guess yeah. you can sense, I don't know, maybe yeah. through certain uh, vibration, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, th I think well, if you know a piece well enough, if you know a piece well enough and you've always played it in one key, you're going to tell something's off if it's suddenly down at semitone. Mm. You know, yeah. it, you, you hear it. There was a record transfer, I think, of the, I think it was something like the Chopin Sonata in B-flat minor, and it was up a uh, half step, and it was kind of jarring to listen to. Mm, right. Very strange. Very strange. Very strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start from your beginning of your musical journey, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. You are quite accomplished concert pianist, but there's always the beginning. So tell me about your upbringing. I know you grew up in a musical family, right? Yes, both of my parents are musicians. My mother was a, you know, is a concert pianist. Now she she works as a pianist in in New York City. She does a lot of ballet classes, vocal coaching, like really everything. Everything wow. except everything except piano teaching. I'm the I'm the piano teaching artist in the family, but mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I learned a ton from her. That's that's my. It's not just my early training, but every program that I do, I play for her, and I I, I get advice, and I know it's going to be completely unfiltered, and <laughs> it's it's something that I can trust because you know you need somebody when you when you publish a commercial album that's going to be listened to repeatedly. You can't unrelease it. You can't withdraw it from the market. So it's she's like one of the people that I completely trust to give her unfiltered opinion before mm -hmm. I set it down. Absolutely. One of the really one of the highest trained professionals that I that I know. Wow. You're yeah. lucky. Yeah. That... It's lucky. And it's also very tough, obviously. It's very <laughs> but tough. That makes you a you know, better pianist every day, each day. Right? Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then so you went off to, first of all, started as a college at Manus and studied yes. with uh, Mr. Jerome Rose. And uh, recently I interviewed uh, someone who studied with Jerome Rose as well. So tell me about the training or the, the study with him. Well, under Jerome Rose, basically when it's it's not just the training, it's also just like life circumstances. So mm -hmm. I got to Manus and I remember Jerome Rose asked me, I brought in the Chopin Ballade. I brought the Chopin Ballade number one. And then I brought him a couple of items. And he thought, he said, well, do you want to do the Chopin competition? I said, you know what? I want to do the list competition. Because they were happening at the same time. It was 2010. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, let's go for it. So I looked at the repertoire list. And I, I think the summer of, I started preparing. But mm -hmm. it, it took around two years. And I learned about three and a half hours of list piano works from scratch, including the Sonata in B minor, and and all of those things and I, I wasn't a prodigy in any sense i didn't have a big repertoire uh, when i auditioned for juilliard and and manus for undergrad 
that was the first time I actually had a complete recital program under my mm -hmm. fingers. So to go from that to suddenly working on three and a half hours or, or more of, of lists music from scratch was like a massive, massive jump. So it's, it's not just the studies with him, but it's also like the circumstances because I just had to do it. And I had to learn all of that myself. And when I brought the pieces into him, they had to be memorized and in tempo and performance ready. And then he would give me feedback. So in a way, it's a kind of advanced, it's a pretty advanced uh, training. And if you look at even teaching artists like Lischetitzky or Anton Rubinstein, if you'll read Hoffman's memoirs, I mean, right? They would bring mm -hmm. in these things already in tempo and kind of performance ready to the right. master. You know, you, you, you're you humble by saying, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not a child prodigy or anything. And Not but... at all. Not at all. <laughs> late, late bloomer, if anything. Uh, really, if it, who else? When I, when I was 17, that was mm -hmm. the, really the first time that I had a complete recital program. And I remember the recital program. It was the... It was the Bach E major Prelude and Fugue Book One, the Beethoven mm -hmm. Waldstein, my first mm -hmm. like complete Beethoven sonata, extremely tough, like really tough. Uh, it's Crab and Etude, Opus 65, number three. Mm -hmm. Ironically, that's, that's also one of the etudes I focused on for my theoretical dissertation. So it's mm -hmm. like I really know that piece inside and out, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also had the list at Mephisto Waltz and the Tchaikovsky Dumka. That's it. That's literally, that, that was, and I worked on that program for over a year just like trying to get it into shape and it was it was mm -hmm. tough mm -hmm. so i wasn't i wasn't a prodigy it, it, it was something like below average below average oh, in terms please. of speed in terms of speed of development so mm -hmm. not not a late bloomer not not like a late mm -hmm. starter but mm -hmm. it, I, I didn't show anything exemplarily uh, exemplarily at all there were people much much further along than me when yeah. i really wanted to get into this which is cool mm -hmm. that's how i didn't run out of steam yet well you know you know so you you don't want to run out of energy this career is a long shot it's not just one time you win something and then you know disappears it's really the lifelong career right yeah there's an also misconception I, I i had an argument with somebody online and they said that every single great artist was at some kind of child prodigy that's just so that's false that's completely mm -hmm. false and the, the fact that popular culture makes it's there's such a premium on a completely freakish feat that's supposed mm -hmm. to somehow come easily. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's, it's if you read somebody like Samuel Feinberg, for example, mm -hmm. one of the first pianists in the Soviet Union to present the 32 Beethoven sonatas. He played the works of all the avant-garde composers for his graduation concert. He presented all the Bach 48 Preludes and Fugues and the mm -hmm. Rachmaninoff third, and you know, all, all the crazy stuff. And he mentions in his, uh, in his book on pedagogy that he had like a more normal kind of memory where he would just have to sit down and absorb things at a pretty slow pace. And he didn't like to rush it. And he could learn things on demand quickly when needed to, but he preferred like a more kind of normal working pace. So it's not mm -hmm. like he could hear a piece of music and reproduce it faultlessly mm -hmm. like, like Joseph Hoffman. So yeah. it's, you know, so I just something that I see, at least in the 21st century, such a premium on, on so-called talent and natural ability, where mm -hmm. it really shouldn't be the case. It's, it should be a premium on training. Oh, amen to that. Yeah. And also this prodigy or the talent being showcased so much, like almost like a celebrity level of attention, right? 
And yeah. there's a there's a place for that. I mean, look, you're trying to stand out, and you know, I, I did a fair share of of competitions, and I didn't really place anywhere. But you know, I, I learned from that, and it helped me develop. But if you see, just from like a marketing standpoint, it's a little bit disturbing because there's always like the latest and greatest, and then gradually it gets replaced by the next you know crop of talent, and it's always like really sensationalized. I don't mean mm -hmm. that in a bad way, but I think we're just talking about like marketing. So I, everything has to be sensationalized. Like YouTube, okay, next YouTube video idea. I learned this piece in one day without the right. piano and then publish it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it has to be something something sensationalized. I was, I was reading something online, an interview with the pianist, and she mentioned mm -hmm. that she worked as a software engineer, mm -hmm. but she had like a, like this kind of freakish talent and then she should memorize the the Rahman of third concerto in a couple of days and then went to perform it with orchestra and one of my students reached out to me and asked me like is this normal and i said no, it's not necessarily normal mm -hmm. and it's just the media i'm not saying her case is not true it is but mm -hmm. it's just the media trying to make it seem like unless you can learn the rock 3 in 2 days while not being even a professional you you, right. you shouldn't be able to do it. I think that's there's a there's a, a broad spectrum of natural abilities, and mm -hmm. they all can be they all can be utilized to the, towards the same end goal. Who cares how long that it how long it took, and who mm -hmm. cares how easy or hard it was, you know? Yeah, 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 uh, absolutely, yeah. But there is like the really meaning in I don't know working so hard to craft your art artistry right so yeah you, and you have also also one one other kind of small thing let's say you you let's say you can learn something but let's say you are in the position to learn something very quickly and you get the notes down and you have it memorized and performance ready how much longer does it actually take to finalize the interpretation and to craft it much longer it's it's still going to be another four six eight months a year on and off and then you keep going you come back to works again and again does it really matter because right. it, it's a it's a masterwork that's going to stay with you your whole life, and you're gonna mm -hmm. you're gonna come back to it again and again. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like in you know, in the case of the List Sonata, I learned that in 2010. I put out my commercial recording of it in 2021. Wow. I could still mm -hmm. come back to it and redo it and have other ideas about it that can be it can be better. It can be a lot worse. Wow, so, you learned you yeah. learned the List Sonata when you were 10. No, 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 2010. Oh, 2010. 2010. Okay, okay, uh, you know, okay. I was I was 20 something. That was mm -hmm. when I was preparing for the for the initial list competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk more about this, you know, misunderstanding of our career later on. Yes. But yeah, tell me more about your study with uh, Mr. Jerome Lowenthal at Juilliard. He is a legend, yes, living he legend. Is. Well, I was at Juilliard for only two years for my for my master's. Yeah. And the general workflow was very similar. Uh, you would have to present something, and he didn't have a hard and fast rule about things being necessarily memorized and in tempo. There was some of my friends would tell me they could just bring in the stuff from the score and not, not prepare it at all and read it in the lesson, but it's Jerome Lowenthal knew when that was the case. They, they, <laughs> you know, just if... If you think your teacher doesn't know that you're taking the easy way out, don't don't lie to yourself. You, how are you going to come into a lesson with reading Chopin nocturnes from the score, preparing it like the, one hour before? Yeah. If you can get away with it, it, it doesn't mean that you're getting the most value out of your lesson. 
Absolutely. Um, but I, I digress. But I, just a funny, just a funny thought. But yeah, I had everything. I always brought things in tempo and and memorized. And he would give me general sort of interpretive advice. But one thing of his that I really learned a lot from. It seems like a really s- slight detail. I was playing a passage in a list rhapsody, and he said, "You know, if you play it so evenly, if you play the notes matched so evenly in volume, it doesn't sound beautiful anymore." It doesn't matter if you have finger control and evenness. It doesn't matter. It has to be kind of shaped. So that that's really, that, I think that's profound. Mm. That's really profound. It's such a minor kind of observation, but it's, it's, I think it's has a huge impact. So then, you know, you, afterwards, did you go directly to Manhattan School to finish yes. your, okay. And yes, I, you, I did everything in a, in a row. It's like this mad rush where at the, at the end of each, at the mm-hmm. end of the degree program, you would kind of audition for the for the next one you know my parents were actually kind of puzzled by that because I, I, when they went to school in the soviet union you would finish you would finish your degree program and then that summer i think you would audition for the next one it's it's so weird that you are you're in march you're already mm-hmm. in sometimes you no know, in the case of pre-screening you are in the september october area of mm-hmm. your last year of school yet you're auditioning for something else isn't that kind of mm-hmm. weird Think about it. I mean, yeah. so, so you're you're already thinking about the next step, where you're actually in the most rigorous year of mm. your program, and you're you're planning ahead for the for the next thing. Very tough. Right. I don't know why it's why it's like that. Maybe auditions should be held in over the summer. Yeah, but you did finish Manhattan School of Music, and then yes. got your D- DMA, correct? Yes. So, before continuing this fun episode with Dr. Michael Kakoff. Let's take a moment to hear from our valued sponsor, Music App, whose generous support helps make this podcast possible. Introducing Music. Ever heard of it? If carrying heavy sheet music binders drains your energy, this app is your solution. On iPad, iPhone, and web, Music is a sheet music reader that will revolutionize your music life by creating a tidy library, no more mess. Music has enchanted 400,000 professional musicians worldwide. With its collaborative features, musicians can share their scores and annotations in real time. Music is also the best companion for amateur musicians. Music created its AI to help musicians of all levels in their daily practice. Get a one-month free trial using the code PIANOPOD23 exclusively for the PianoPod listeners. Claim your free month with music today. So you studied with all these famous, amazing music schools in the world. After graduating, was your career red carpet ready and everybody is just cheering you and waiting for you to have this big concert career? I bet it, it was. Not, not huh? at all. Not at all. So Really? So, what yeah, happened? Well, first of all, first of all, the if you look at the DMA program, it's two years of coursework. Then it's, it's something called ABD, all but dissertation. <laughs> so at that point, you can kind of hang around. I was very fortunate that at my third year of doctoral studies, I was able to extend my kind of teaching duties there. Mm-hmm. So all the way up until 2020, when the pandemic mm-hmm. hit, I was teaching some of those keyboard skills classes at the Manhattan School of Music. So very little, just a couple of hours a week, sometimes less. Like a symbolic amount, if any. But all that time, I was I was teaching and building the experience, working with like a variety of students every single year, which is awesome. That's really the I think that was the real value to get a workflow 
for adult learning for for college education it, it was also ended up being very good for the resume because you have a you know so-called experience kind of teaching in a row it's not my accomplishment i was just very lucky to have that to be able to teach not just required piano but also keyboard skills and harmonization uh transposition things like that score reading yeah well and then the then the pandemic hit and mm-hmm. obviously the the kind of teaching stopped actually stopped a little bit before that because the position kind of rotated but everything went fully remote and i went to florida because my parents felt like it's a good idea to maybe escape the pandemic and go there and there was a, there was a place to stay there and they ended up spending around 4 months in florida without really add a little keyboard there but mm-hmm. without any piano and mm-hmm. i just sat there writing my dissertation there was literally nothing else to do and i was refining the dissertation and going back and forth with my thesis advisor and really correcting every word it was ridiculous in a, in a good way it was so detailed so by the time you finish your dissertation so that was actually while you're writing dissertation it was during pandemic yes yeah yeah yes. that's right that's true that i didn't realize how uh recent it, it was so what's like to be a concert pianist now so how are you managing your concert pianist career um, well yeah know? so mm-hmm. i i understand so it's it's sort of well let me let me tell you how i kind of got to this point and how i came upon the idea of just like self-managing and self-promoting and investing some income into this because things have to kind of click in place for this to be possible and I was extremely extremely fortunate so even when I was in school all but dissertation I was applying to various college jobs and just looking like how am I going to make an income how am I going to make an income and if you look at college teaching positions nobody is going to offer you anything that's even remotely like full time it's going to be a, a part time and you're going to be looking into possibly like relocating and i'm not saying this as a complaint but you'll be relocating for something like 100 bucks a week and if you look at the workload that you're going to get a couple of keyboard classes in a, in a community college which is a very desirable position very mm-hmm. desirable but you're going to look at something like like 100 bucks a week which is not sustainable so i was applying to all of those getting constant rejections and i thought you know what what can i really do so i started looking into remote remote work the, that kind of clicked into place and i started working for two different companies and then eventually i just settled on on a virtual academy because it just it's like a more flexible much more flexible work and scheduling mm-hmm. and i love it because i mean do the math for a minute if you can literally teach from home you don't mm-hmm. have to commute your right. schedule is flexible if something comes up you can reschedule or move the lesson around they manage the I'm, i'm not advertising them but i kind of am and it's not a paid sponsorship or anything <laughs> but they they're really like if you look them up they have a huge variety of teachers mm-hmm. they have a huge roster of even if piano teachers they have like pages and pages mm-hmm. and pages of of people that teach for them so it's great and in terms of income it's yeah it's kind of freelancing it's not stable mm-hmm. but it's a lot better than applying to just any open college position and really looking desperate because mm-hmm. when you when you're desperate for work i think recruiters can tell mm-hmm. they can tell that you're going to settle for for pretty much anything right right, right. so yes. it, and it, it, when you apply to a school mm-hmm. at least the way i because the, you know college employment is still like a long term goal for me i'd love to 
teach in a college setting again. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. really like it's a it's part of my kind of career goal, and I think it's going to open up more doors for for performance as well because these sure. things are they're connected. It's not like a separate separate yeah. thing. But yeah, so in terms of like advice, I would say just don't apply constantly to any open job, but really research the school and see mm-hmm. what you can, you know, where you might want to work at mm-hmm. and have real concrete reasons why you might want to relocate there. Now, how yeah. about your concert activities? So after graduation, so that was sort of still in the height of pandemic. So yes, uh, yeah, almost almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend Jeremy Jordan, also a Juilliard mm-hmm. graduate, we mm-hmm. kind of connected ironically like during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. He's he was also on the faculty of the Harlem School of the Arts. And I kind of remember him in passing from Juilliard, but we never really kind of connected until until after graduation. Very weird. But just the Juilliard life in a nutshell, you don't really know anybody. He had this little concert series right in his house where he would do streams. So I thought, you know, why not just go over there and stream a lot of the repertoire that I was going to record? So I did, I did multiple, multiple streams for him. And that was basically my concert activities that year during the pandemic and right now i'm kind of pivoting towards just renting out venues and looking at advertising and managing this myself it's awesome wow you're managing all these you know your concerts by yourself well by by all i mean i'm starting out with just this one in september but it's the Mm -hmm. first one that is completely Mm self-funded that is non-profit it's completely free for admissions and mm-hmm. I'm not looking to make any money from it. It's wow. it's literally just to kind of, um, it, it's not even that big of a financial hit if you look at the the mm-hmm. tax write-off mm-hmm. that it's a potential tax write-off for this. So mm-hmm. it just, I, I think that's that's also like a valid, uh, valid goal if you're looking at this because there's people that are concerned about it. They're, mm-hmm. they're wondering how can I make an income from this right away? And if you're looking at to doing too many things at once, you're going to be deeply unhappy. You're going to be deeply unhappy. You have to pick one. If you're looking at consistent profits or are you looking at artistic development and playing how you want, what you want, you know? So just, I would just say, like, if people looking to get into this, like, just go for it, find an affordable venue, clever house in New York, very affordable, rent it, advertise it, go from there. That's, that's, there's nothing more to it than that. And preferably, with live streaming, you can build up an, an, an audience or a small team of people that are going to support you no matter right. what. Yeah. And so tell me about this concert. So unfortunately, this uh, episode will come out after this concert at the clubhouse in that's in Hell's Kitchen area of New York yes. City, correct? Well, yes. it's going to be it's going to be streamed and archived somewhere, so it's not that much. Oh, of a oh, big wonderful! Deal. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Well, I actually I will try to be there in person, so I'm very nice. excited about that. It's uh, going to be on September second at five p.m. So tell me about the concert. It's going to be I think the all Franz list pieces yes right? yes mm-hmm. it's a it's an old france list program mm-hmm. and i pitched this program to one of the record labels that i work with audra deck uh, records it's kind of i want to sidetrack here because when i did my first old list album i just released it on on Bandcamp and spotify it was like a totally self-published you literally just go to a studio they give you the recorded masters they give you the video i edited everything myself 
and it was like a very a very affordable very low budget thing but the sound quality was great so i used that and i found the this record label Deck, which was special because they take submissions and they these submissions are judged by a team of people who are actually already recording artists for Deck. so right now i actually judge some of their some of the stuff that comes in and it's all done completely anonymously so I, I, I sent them the, the materials from my first self-published list album, and they approved the, this, second, this second release that I kind of done through them. So this, this upcoming thing is going to be my third O-list album, but it's only my second commercial album with Deck. The program was picked, first of all, because these works are really underrepresented. They're easier to pitch. Nobody's going to... You need a very good reason if you want to record you know, Chopin 24 Preludes, Second Sonata and Third Sonata, mm-hmm. things that have been recorded a hundred times right. every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that in a bad way, just it's it's a little bit less unique just from the fact that it's been done so, so many times right. versus something like this where there's only a handful of commercial recordings available. So mm-hmm. it, it got accepted. It, the proposal got accepted like through mm-hmm. an anonymous kind of judgment thing and I'm right. fortunate to do it. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. So tell yeah. me the list of pieces that you'll be uh, recording and also performing at the concert as well, because there are they the same pieces, They're the same. right? They're mm-hmm. exactly yeah. the same, and probably in the same order. Okay. As you know, what you play live in one sitting might mm-hmm. should it's, it might be better to order it a little bit differently than mm-hmm. on an album where the first track has to like completely grab you because you assume that the listener may not make it past the first track. I don't mean that like in a demeaning way. It, right, it's, right. A, it's a very different listening to something at home on a kind of a passive. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a different medium. It's a different medium entirely. Absolutely. So the absolutely. ordering on the on the album is going to be different. But for the recital, I'm mm-hmm. going to start out with the Handel List Sarabande and Chacon mm-hmm. transcription, which is Beautiful. rare, very yes. rare. Yes. One, of his, yes. one of his last... Mm-hmm last compositions in in that kind of style so that's the first one uh, then i have the impromptu in f sharp major mm-hmm. very beautiful late work it's it's well known vladimir horowitz mm-hmm. recorded it way mm-hmm. back in, in the 1885 1985 i believe 1985 yeah then i have the the takata which is a rare really mm-hmm. rare yeah. rare piece and there, mm-hmm. there's there's a couple of add-ons to it that list sort of he revised it towards the end of his life it's unclear when it was composed but probably in the 1870s so the last decade last decade of his life and then the very last hungarian rhapsody the rhapsody mm-hmm. number 19 wow that's awesome yes mm-hmm. that's that's the, the first piece. half it's great mm-hmm. it, the funny thing about that piece it's a transcription it's actually a transcription so it's it's based on motives by other hungarian composers we wow. can't really find the originals, but it's not like a, it's it's not original material. It's a, really a transcription, and that's the that's kind of the first half. Uh, second mm-hmm. half is the Chartish Macabre, again mm-hmm. one of those like extremely extremely virtuosic pieces that he wrote mm-hmm. towards the end mm-hmm. of his life. When people think late list, they may not associate it with mm-hmm. like extreme piano feats, but that mm-hmm. piece is pretty extreme, full of tremolos and like, all, all sorts of things. Very mm-hmm. tough, very tough. It's sort of like the late list equivalent of the Grand Gallop. Chromatic, mm-hmm. I would say it's something like that. So, uh, Chartish Macabre, then I will do the Trar Vorspiel und Trar March. So, it's a late, kind of late, late composition. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really aware of it before I kind of picked it. It's pretty awesome. And I have mm-hmm. 
Mephisto Polka in the third Mephisto mm -hmm. Waltz. Now, uh, list. Oh, third, third Mephisto. Third, third oh, Mephisto. that's rare. Yes. That's rare. That's rare. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And he, third Mephisto Waltz and Mephisto Polka. So, mm -hmm. interesting thing about Mephisto Waltzes, List has a total of four, but mm -hmm. number four never really got completely finished. Yeah, there really isn't like a consensus. Leslie Howard found some more like additional drafts that List did of that fourth Mephisto Waltz. So he kind mm -hmm. of combined it into one version, but it, it never got finished. So the fourth Mephisto Waltz is never got done. That's why it's not on my on my list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and then mm -hmm. the Mephisto Polka and the Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky mm -hmm. Polonaise from the mm -hmm. Evgenia Negin composed the same year as the as the handle. So it's like an arc. It's like an arc. Start with the transcription, mm -hmm. end with the transcription. Wow. That's yeah. going to be amazing. I can't wait to actually hear you perform all these pieces live on September 2nd. And then also the uh, album will be probably available sometime next year, you said? Yeah, mm -hmm. it'll be done before the end of the year. It will be recorded definitely before the end of the year. I have the recording sessions booked mm -hmm. and and planned. It's, it's, I'm going to record it actually in New York City. It's Skillman, Skillman mm -hmm. Music in, oh, in yes. Brooklyn. In yeah. Brooklyn, yes, 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 yeah. yes. Which yeah. is a well-known well -known studio, probably the most affordable solution right now. That's still going to give you a very good, very good sound. That's obviously worthy of a commercial release. Mm -hmm. I, I like doing these things under a reasonable budget. And they're self-funded. Yes. Wonderful. Now, yeah. so you know, we've been communicating back and forth to prepare for this interview. You know, and then uh, in one of the, I think, emails, you mentioned that you only started grinding your own album projects and really diving deep into recording and playing what you want and how you want after a certain age. So playing all this program for your upcoming concert and then the you know album, is that what you mean by playing what you want and how you want? Yes. Well, if you, my first album, like the, my first all list album was something mm -hmm. that I've done basically as I was coming out of school, as I was finishing up the doctoral. So I only really started playing and thinking about these things after mm -hmm. after graduating mm -hmm. i think the school mentality and the the idea that you're gonna you're gonna pick a sort of well-known selection mm -hmm. that everybody plays and you're gonna present those for a competition and hopefully win and get a management that may not be like the the, the most um you can try that but mm -hmm. it, it may not be the, the the best kind of path you also have to do something on the side where you you have to think about things like is this is this kind of rare enough is it going to contribute something to a label like can i get somebody on board with this sort of repertoire and why am i why am i playing it mm. why am i you know if you pick something like chopin four scherzos that i did last year why would you play those i, I did it but why, why would you do it arthur rubinstein recorded all four scherzos in 1932 right now it's 2023 i mean you know why? yeah why mm. you have to answer that if you're going to work on something really standard yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Being a freelancer and then, you know, self-funding and then you are also managing your career, I think. But a lot of us pianists are that way. But, you know, with the accessibility in technology and you'll be able to do if you are willing to do this, take this path, no? Yes, absolutely. You have to. You have to be completely behind it, and then you can't back down. Once you mm -hmm. go for it, you go for it. You know something? When I started investing my own money into this, I started playing better. 
Mm-hmm. Really, it's it's like a really bad thing to say, but it's like no. <laughs> when your own money is online, you are absolutely going to prepare to your best ability. Mm-hmm. There's no you're going to look at every detail, and mm-hmm. you can't unrelease a record. You can't like unrelease it once it's out. It's out. It's up to you to present your 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 best version of it and right. prove it. Yeah, but in many ways, you can create your pathway. Right, sure. your your career. You, this is this is your brand. You as Michael Kakov, that's a, that's the brand. So nobody is going to tell you, you know, what to wear, how yes. you present yourself, yes. to what sort of repertoire to prepare. But you can create your thing, and you can create your audience as well, right? Yes, and you can also, you know, you can take as much as you want on any project. You can always extend the deadline to mm-hmm. a certain to a certain limit, of course. It's it's so awesome. That concludes the first half of this fun episode of the Piano Pod with Dr. Michael Kakov, concert pianist, recording artist, and educator from New York City. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also watch this episode on the Piano Pod's YouTube channel, and don't forget to follow the Piano Pod on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And LinkedIn. The links are listed in the show notes. Tune in next Tuesday, September twelfth, at eight p.m. to hear the rest of the interview with Dr. Michael Kakoff. <laughs>